I have a media business class that I teach sometimes, and in it, I almost always touch on this concept of ownership. Like who owns the rights? If are you going to decide to be an entrepreneur, in which case you own your own output, or are you going to sign up with a company, a legacy uh, media of some sort, and uh, you know hand over all of your work product to them or, or allow them to control it. And if not, then you have to write it into your contract that you get to do books on the side, you know, as long as it doesn't conflict with the work you're doing. And in doing so, I often talk about this whole controversy about bittersweet symphony, right? The, uh, the Verve song that was based on the Andrew Lug Oldham Muzak version of um, the first Stones, um, really, the wasn't it the first Stones written single? Well, it, it's it was Andrew Goldham Orchestra. Yeah, we're dealing with an orchestra, and let's just say a very large sample of that is the reoccurring thread of the, right. of the Verve. I will say that uh, Mick and Keith just gave uh, back their writer's share to the to the band. Um, yeah, which I thought was very nice. That was very generous. And after they after they held it for a very long time and milked it for a lot of money. But what I meant is the very first recording was based on the last time. The And wasn't the last time, in, at least according to Rolling Stone legend, wasn't that the first time they sat down and wrote a song? Well, they had done a few other songs uh, that Andrew Goldham had placed with other people uh, something for Gene Pitney. Okay. Uh, this girl belongs to yesterday, but but it's it, it was right on the heels of that. And okay. you know, as tears go by was a pretty early. Uh, in fact, Andrew's the co-writer of Tears Go By. Oh, of course. They, they they knew very early, or Andrew instructed them if you want to have durability and longevity in this rat race game. Um, you better start writing your own material. Right. By the time they got to the Aftermath album, which you love, they wrote every song on yeah. that album. So, right. I mean, it's two, year, two years later, every song they penned. So and, they're, and they were decent, obviously. You know, but the reason I, I say that is I, I, was play, I play a clip of uh, them singing the last time. I think it was on Ed Sullivan's show or something. Yeah. And, uh, and Keith Richards doesn't, I mean, Keith Richards doesn't look like most people know him now from Pirates of the Caribbean or people that didn't grow up with him. He's kind of really unrecognizable. And um, he sort of evokes George Harrison in a way, but <laughs> right. But it was funny as I, I was showing that clip to somebody in class and I heard a girl lean over to the person sitting next to him and say, that used to pass for good looking. I thought that was so funny. Well, we're, we are seeing rock and roll bands where members, Keith is 80 in December. Crazy. I don't know why age is always brought up because, you know, I, I don't know why it's such a prime factor. Um, but I will say we have hardly ever seen rock and roll people right into their 80s make new music let alone maybe tour it's happened a bit in country and of course it's happened a little bit in jazz um and and even with the stones shall we say their lifestyle over the years um you know i'm just kind of grateful 
these people are still with us because, like, even hearing Can't Always Get What You Want, which Jack Nietzsche did the choral arrangement on, um, it, you know, time sometimes time stands still when you hear a great rock and roll record. But even think about the memory you told the world right now when you heard the intro of Can't Always Get What You Want, even in a, as interstitial sound. Right. It it brings you back 50 years. Right. It does. And and effectively brings it back to the first time uh, I ever heard it. Um, you, you brought up Jack Nietzsche, Nietzsche a couple of times. And um, for people that don't know, he was a hot mess. I mean, he was a very talented arranger. Uh, but, you know, they traded up with Chuck Lavelle, as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. And uh, Chuck was on this show a couple of years ago. And he's awesome. Yes, but yes. I... But that whole thing, I mean, he just was, he was threatening all the women and getting arrested and whatever. I mean, he was a, he, he was not a, he was not a nice drunk. It didn't seem like. Let's just say Jack sort of lost the plot. Yeah. And there's a documentary coming out on him. Oh, is there? I, I supplied some audio of an interview I did with Jack in 2000. Um, there's a different Jack Nietzsche. It's sort of like um, B.C. and A.D., if we're going to put in the biblical right. link. The Jack Nietzsche from 1957 to 66 is one person, and then after that, a whole different persona and person developed or, you know, came forward. Yeah. Um, you know, and I did know him. I did two long interviews with him, and we had a couple meals, and I went to his house. And and but I'm a big fan of his work. Oh yeah. But but, but you know, with the Stones, um, he, he you know he played piano on maybe eight of their albums. But the keyboardist in the Stones, it's Chuck Lavelle. It could be Ian Stewart. It could be Nicky Hopkins. It could be right. Preston. The keyboardists are the secret sauce in the Rolling Stones arsenal. And now Elton John and Stevie Wonder. It's That's very rarely discussed. Yeah, I agree. And, um, you know, I, I think he had a signature sound. And I, I have this image in my head of the early Jack Nietzsche um, where he's like, um, part of the, you know, he's doing something with the wrecking crew or conducting a song for uh, the instrumental track for something. And he's, he's wearing this crisp white shirt. Yes. Um, he's got a tie, his arms are up, he's excited. And then you read about all the, the then you see him on that replay on cops where he's just like swinging a baseball. Bat. Well, you know, the interesting thing about that, that episode of cops I actually asked him about it. I mean, you know, he was an acquaintance of mine. Let's not, I can't call him a friend. Right. But I will say one thing, you know, uh, when somebody had stolen a hat of his on Hollywood Boulevard and he went back home to get a gun to go find the guy that took his hat. Right. And then he got caught with a firearm on Hollywood Boulevard and he got put into the police car and um, he... He sort of told us um, as he was going in to get a mugshot and fingerprinted, one of the security guards and cops said to him, 
keep moving Academy Award winner. Yeah. I'm, well, I, I mean, I mean, it's. But so isn't that what he exclaimed to them? Don't you know I'm an Academy Award winner? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that's so he was getting, begging for that kind of sarcasm. You, that's not getting you a quick pass out of the. <laughs> no. No, not in Hollywood anyway. Not, not around. Not in Hollywood. That, that might work in Manhattan, Kansas, maybe. <laughs> I, I don't know. But um, all right. So I, I didn't mean to get sidetracked with that, but I, I find that many of these people surrounding the Stones, they crash and burn. Um, the Stones go up and down, but they never. I mean, after the Brian Jones thing, and you know, having to fire Mick Taylor, and you know, they they kind of. You know, they had a pretty stable lineup for a very long time. They did. And again, when you're sometimes in the orbit of these high-profile bands, either you're hanging out, you're working with them, you're on sessions, you're touring with them. Uh, it's a different, it's a whole different trip now. You sometimes absorb uh, nasty habits that exist or right. good habits uh, I mean, by the time I really got to go to Rolling Stone sessions in 1997, uh, people were handing me wheatgrass juice and orange juice to drink. Right. Funny. I mean, that's not a, that doesn't really fit the profile. Uh, right. It must have been a lot different. Um, although, although I learned a lot about nutrition watching Keith Richards eat a steak, it was. He would take a bite of the steak, go into the studio, and then 40 minutes later, take another bite from the steak. So the steak took four hours to be devoured, but it was protein. And, and it was interesting the way – I mean, and this is only one glimpse of one night. Who knows if that is, you know. Right. I saw him in a, it was a restaurant, Musso and Frank's with him and Ronnie, and, you know, they all ordered liver and onions. And, um, you know, but it was interesting just kind of watch how people, the Stones thing is a very closed shop, but once you're in, and I'm talking band-centric endeavors, it's a really machine right now, but it was pretty chaotic uh, and energy-fueled decades ago. But the results are either on stage or on the audio that we hear or the videos that we like, and that's probably really what counts. Yeah. Uh, well, and it is there is there's a you kind of do have to divide a little bit with Jack Nietzsche for that matter too on his physical or mental devolvement. He's still the guy who did the arrangement for. River Deep Mountain High, which is a hugely underrated song and really a pleasure to listen to after all these years. It's, um, and people talk about that song being like a flop because it only went to right. number 88 in the United States and it was top three in England. Right. But, you know, in conversations I had with Phil Spector and interviews with him, and I'm going back into the 70s mostly. Um, talk about hot messes. I, I don't think Go ahead. people realize... Um, that he was kind of the co-writer or the co-publisher of that song. I mean, Celine Dion still encores with River Deep Mountain High. There must right. be 75 to 200 cover versions of River Deep Mountain High. Yeah. Tina Turner still sang it in her act. So is it really a flop because no. maybe 
the single didn't go top right. 10 in America. Would you like to have the revenue streams <laughs> yeah. of the publishing income case closed? Sure. No, no kidding. And for that matter, too, up where we belong and all these other things. But Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I'm always willing to grant that. But it is interesting still to see people who like, you know, in a way, I mean, again, we're not really talking about the Rolling Stones, although Brian Jones is a good example of this. They, you know, if they'd stepped off, they would still be with us. Or if they hadn't gotten so obsessed as to begin to read their own press releases and all of that, then I think they they would have personally been better off. And it's almost like there's a um, it's almost like something that's inherited, like almost like a like the proclivity to alcoholism or something, where a little bit of fame with some people. And they're fine. They make fun of it and, you know, they just, they kind of milk it. And then other people, they just become obsessed with it and they don't know, they can't live without it. You know, they don't. I would would agree. Like, it wasn't until the late 70s that there were facilities like the Betty Ford Center. Right. And so that, those, those outlets did not really exist in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Um, Also, some people aren't built for rock and roll, let alone the music business. Right, adulation. They're just, you know, and some people thrive on it. Um, And so each case study is different. Um, But, you know, there comes a time when a band starts getting successful. You either show up to the gig or you're not at the gig. And the show goes on. And we did, and in the case of like Jim Morrison, and I, you know, I saw the the doors, and I was close with Ray Manzarek. Let's just say there was an alcoholism history in Jim's family. Uh, that's and, and many hundreds of thousands of millions of people have that situation, parental or family right. member. And you know, there weren't the the rehab centers or the counseling. I mean, I've seen some record contracts where therapists and psychologists are actually built into the agreements. And they should be. Which is a smart thing if you're laying out hundreds of thousands of dollars of recording budgets for a band. You at least want to know there's a monitor that you'll recruit. That stuff didn't exist on some of the sad, tragic, incredible talents that we've just talked about. Yeah. Again, we're talking with Harvey Kubernick. Uh, the new book uh, that he wrote the introduction for and frames is um, the Rolling Stones icons, a collection of photography from both band members and from people who are around the band, intimate photographs, some of them that haven't been seen uh, in f- 50 years. Some, I-, I am assuming some of those, just because I know that the nature of photography, some of those photos they might have seen a version of that same session or they might have seen a version in that same sequence, but not the actual photo that's in the book. Yeah, and this is what we're getting, not just with this book, but the new or the more recent rock and roll photo books that are coming out. Uh, People like outtakes or different poses from the same session where, where it's not as rigid or as it used to be. So one of the, the visual delights for collectors or, or people that like rock photo books, 
that the rights owners or the original photographers or their estates, if they're not on the physical planet, they're going a little bit more for the deep dive. And so, oh, we've seen that album cover before. Oh, that's a different, somebody's a little different, wearing a different uniform or something. So we're starting to see that as rock keeps progressing, and I'm talking about the documentation of it. uh, We're starting to see things coming out of the closet a bit, or hidden gems or different artifacts or ephemera, which is something that I travel in for decades, because I just don't write the books or work with a lot of people. I pride myself in finding the photos are actually serving kind of as the photo editor as well, because I, it's just, an, you know, I can play all the positions and I'm, I'm very meticulous in the history and the truth coming out. And, and, and so I really want to see ticket stubs and outtakes and set lists. Right. These, these are things that, that are spotlighted in all the books that I do. Um, it, it, it... I think we have one minute before the bottom of the hour news or break. So let me, I just ask this question. Uh, is it, I love the story that came out when Charlie Watts passed. First of all, I mean, to your point about fashion, you learn a lot about fashion just by seeing um, Charlie Watts's lapels get wider and then more narrow again, wider and then more narrow again. But you know, this was guy who was impeccably dressed. He was treated being the drummer for the Stones very professionally, which made him a little bit of an outsider with Bill Wyman about, you know, the inner workings of the Stones and the craziness that went along with that circus. But is it true on the story about how he decked Mick Jagger because Mick Jagger referred to him as my drummer? I think he said "Where me drummer or something like that. I've heard that from a half a dozen people, but um, I knew Charlie Watts. He actually was a friend of mine. Uh, I'm starting in the the early 90s. We traded books and and records, and uh, he he helped me out at concerts. And and I also might have been the only person in history. I arranged a a meeting for Charlie to meet one of his uh, jazz heroes, a drummer named Stan Levy, who who played with Stan Kenton, and wow. I invited our mutual pal Jim Jim Keltner over to Stan's house. Oh, I love and Jim Keltner. Okay, Charlie's coming by to meet Stan Levy. It's like he always wanted to meet him, and I would get autographs of Chico Hamilton for Charlie, who was an autograph collector, and I would say to Jim, I wonder what kind of incredible wardrobe Charlie's going to show up today in. And he gets out of the taxi... And he's wearing blue jeans and a pullover shirt. Uh, so I have really... been the only person who ever saw him in a pair of Levi's. All right, hang on a second. I want to get back to that story, though, about uh, him decking Mick Jagger. Because I've read a couple interesting versions of that. Plus, we'll give the number so you can join the conversation, too, next on Coast to Coast AM. This is Ian Punnett. Uh, Harvey Kubernick is the... Um, in- I, I guess he he gets the introduction notes, but also helps to sort of um, guide the reader of this new book, uh, The Rolling Stones Icons, through years of photography of this band. Uh, great art book and an opportunity for you to grab a gift, get it early. Um, and um, also, uh, we're played, we played a couple of tracks from the new Stones album. 
That one I don't like as much as the first one. I love the one we played last hour. I think it's just awesome. Got a bunch of people standing by. So is it really true that Charlie Watts sent Mick Jagger flying into the salmon pate? I have to tell you, I've heard 18 different versions of this. I can't can't justify or know anything about it. I wasn't there. But I also know one thing. There's going to be tensions in any band. Right. And little things can set people off. And, uh, you know, I know that they were close and dear friends. And, um, you know, you're going to have a row once every 10 or 20 years with somebody here in the band, let alone a marriage or something, you know? Right. Uh, Keith Richards, I think, was the one who told the story. I saw it on video or saw it in his book or something. Sometimes Keith's memory is a little bit off, <laughs> by the way. Well, but there was something about this that seemed to have at least the ring of truth. Oh, that... yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Believe me, I'm, I'm not camouflaging it. Right. Um, and then it was 1984, and, and uh, you know, uh, they said it, it took a lot to wind up Charlie Watts because he was otherwise very laconic. Uh, but they were in Amsterdam, and he referred to him then as, you know, me drummer or where's my drummer. And uh, and then uh, Charlie Watts punched him in the face and said, to the effect of either version I like, never call me your drummer again. Or when he punched him, he said, you're my singer. <laughs> Not... It all works for me. Yeah. Uh, All right. So we've got a bunch of people who are hanging on for Harvey Kubernick, Rolling Stones, Icons. Let's go to, we'll start with uh, Jim in Delaware on Coast to Coast. Jim? Hey, Jim. Hey, anyway, uh, I was done with the Rolling Stones after uh, Emotional Rescue. What's that, 1981? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was anyway. kind of disco still, a little, you know. But anyway, anyway, and I mean, Voodoo Lounge, I tried, you know, what are they right. into now? I think that's 94. Right. And I'm like, man, I'm, we're trying to sell it on eBay. We don't think it's going to sell on there. Anyway, well, I, I really think you like, like this new album, I though. Know, I do think you like this. I want to ask you one simple question first, then I'm going to get into another performer. What, do you have a favorite Rolling Stones CD or um, album? Yeah, what would be your favorite? Exile? Exile in Main Street. Yeah. But but I must tell you, Beggar's Banquet. Banquet. I was going to say, that's like a toss of the coin. Those are right. kind of the four that, that just kind of, they're on my desert island discs yeah i would uh, for me it would be the same thing it would be exile or beggar's banquet i'd go back and forth uh okay and then jim you had a, a quick question about somebody else yeah here um another guest host on coast to coast was talking about the death of hendrix that supposedly hendrix's manager i think mike jeffries let let uh, his road manager know that he had Jimi Hendrix bumped off. Uh, that's Chaz Chandler. Yeah, yeah. Okay. That's yeah. Um, but uh, formerly of the Animals, uh, Harvey. What what is your feeling on that story? I've heard fifty different. I mean, my brother and I wrote a book on Jimi Hendrix. Right. Um, and we 
we kind of veered away. It was more of a recording study of Jimmy. That being said, between some of the documentaries I've seen or the audio documentary broadcasts or the handful of books I've read on Jimmy, and there's probably 300 of them, right. there's never one clear answer. There's a lot of innuendo. There's a lot of very potent theories. I must say what I... When, uh, only recently, or in the last couple of years, have the road managers volunteered or been documented or gave their input about the physical t- demise of Jimmy. Right. And, and whether he and, got and, hot dosed. They, they, they seem to be the people that knew or were there, or at least they were closer to the flame. Right. I don't. I don't really get preoccupied with this. Uh, it's Jimmy's birthday in November, and I just treasure the four years we had him as a creative artist on the planet. That I get, uh, but we actually had the, um, I believe he's referring to like, so there was Chaz Chandler from The Animals who was... The original uh, manager produced, origi- replaced by Mike Michael Jeffrey. That's what it was. And that this guy came in and he said basically that Jimmy was worth more to him dead than alive because he was running up all these bills and whatever. Whatever the truth there is to that story or not. Yeah, that's been on television and a couple of different documentaries. It's still the ballsiest thing I've ever seen. One of them is when only having worked out the chords just before he went on stage um, did... Uh, Jimi Hendrix do um, uh, Sergeant Pepper's in front of Paul McCartney. Yeah, that was at the Seville Theater in London. He lived. It was literally the day the album was coming out. Right, and, and the and the show was actually promoted by Brian Epstein and members of the Beatles. Maybe John and Paul were there. I think. Paul might have been the only person there, but I think George might. No, I, I think George was there too. Yeah, George was there. Yeah. And he he did a bit of Sergeant Pepper. In fact, um, I interviewed Roger Daltrey once uh, on a book on the Monterey International Pop Festival, and he told me that there was a jam underneath the, the stage at Monterey Pop where Jimmy was playing all the top lines of Sergeant Pepper. Oh, this funny! Mid June of '67, so it was definitely part of his repertoire. Yeah. And uh, but that's definitely that's definitely true, and it's a really fascinating uh, anecdote. Yeah, because it, if I remember from some of the other guys in the band, they were still looking at Jimmy for the chord changes <laughs> that he's right in the middle yeah. of doing it live, and nails it. It's on YouTube. It's really great. Hey, let me ask you um, uh, this one question before we get away. Um, well, actually, let's do Drew in Atlanta and then Pete. They've been hanging on the longest on Coast to Coast. Go ahead, Drew. Drew? Hey, how are you? Can you hear me okay? Hey, yeah. Drew. Oh, awesome. Guys, I just had a quick question. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of a Beatles guy, but this whole conversation has got me way more into the Stones. And I'm curious, and I'm going to go back to maybe the early 60s or late 60s. How did the Stones look at the Beatles, um, the Yardbirds, Zeppelin, that, were they oh. a brotherhood, or were they more in kind of competition with each other? And is there any context you can provide on that? Do they have to be mutually exclusive? Go ahead, uh, well, Harvey. Uh, look, these were people that were coming out of World War II. And as Keith Richards told me and 
numerous English musicians, the first six or seven or eight years of their lives, they were on food, kind of food stamp restriction, government cheese and milk, like, you know, like certificates just to get sugar and stuff. And then Keith said the world became technicolor when things got better. But they were all children of World War II. I mean, they were they they arrived as their homes are being bombed, and so rock and roll was an escape to them. And they were all in the same studios together. They might have been on some different record labels. There was a camaraderie and a brotherhood. I mean, Andrew Lou Goldham arranged for the John and Paul to write a song for the. For the Stones, I Want to Be Your Man, which was kind of a hit single. I love and, that song. And so, and so they were not, they all did shows together. They went out with some of the same women. They had sometimes the same managers or under the same production companies. So it didn't get too crazy until way later this century where things like competition or lawsuits and legal stuff right. was in the air but believe me that that first arrival period they were just happy to get some food to eat it again right. these people yeah. really really they didn't know about catering they didn't know about having to get a real meal after a show they were just trying to get to the next day yeah yeah, get petrol to get to the next petrol. Very gig. good, nice one. Thank you. Um, you know what's interesting though too is that um, I, I think of them though as that's a lot of that was kind of manufactured, you know, by yeah. the the Teen Beat magazines and I other agree. stuff. Yeah, but there were some interesting comments, uh, you know, because because uh, Drew brought up the Yardbirds. I, you know, there were a lot of, there were people who were doing the purest thing and they were still going to be a blues band. Yeah. And when, when the role, you know, the Beatles were never a blues band. That was not their thing. But the Rolling Stones started off as a blues band. And so when they started drifting into pop and rock and all of that, there was, I think, wasn't there some undercurrents of resentment of like, oh, they're selling out? Oh, that existed the minute they started, uh doing, you know, a Hank Snow song, I'm right. moving on, or, or or just covering some, you know, Motown hitchhike. As, right. soon as, they, as soon as they stopped having a harmonica on a track, they, the real hardcore people are already showing up with signs that say sellout. Yeah, that's what I thought, because um, I've seen that, that. That never stopped them at all, and, and it really got amplified when the Stones were doing things like uh, miss you, including a disco version. There was a disco oh, yeah. version of Harlan Shuffle too, but you know, once people start, you want a wider demographic. You want traffic. You want to sell product. I don't think anybody. Why even sign a recording contract? You think you just do it for free? No, no, I, I'm with you. But you know, it's funny you bring up like Miss You, and also, I mean, there was part of that Rod Stewart was doing it. Other people were doing it at the time. Uh, I thought their version of Harlem Shuffle started out like a great idea because I really think, or when they did like 20 Flight Rock or something, you know, there's certain things that they lend themselves to, whether it's on albums or live performances, where the Rolling Stones still sounded like the cool band. And then other times, you know, they might as well have been playing the seashore. (laughs) 
So it wasn't. All right, let's get to Pete in North Carolina on Coast to Coast for Harvey Kubernick. Go ahead, Pete. Road. Hello, Pete. Yeah. Hello. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Perfect. Hey, I wanted to ask Harvey. You mentioned one of my favorite uh, rock footages about Tammy. Have there ever been any outtakes released from that movie? Oh, that's a great and, uh, question. I also wanted to ask you, you mentioned uh, Missy with the Stones. Whatever happened to the harmonica player, Sugar Blue, they hired to play on that? Uh, I don't know. I think he might have passed away a few years ago. I'm not sure. He did live in Paris, I believe. He played solo gigs a lot. Um, I don't think there are any outtakes of the Tammy show. I, I've asked, that would be cool. Uh, you know, it, again, you're dealing with a world then where you shot what was happening, and there were probably redos as well, but, right. but the ownership of the master negative has gone through so many owners and permutations and rights holders. Right. Nobody, it's always been kind of cloudy a little bit. And uh, I would sure like to to hear some of the other versions. Um, but back then, it's like D.A. Pennybaker, the, the documentarian, told me about shooting Monterey Pop. The original plan was maybe um, to shoot one song each of the performers. Right. Somehow, they had enough film to shoot all the stuff. However, by the time they got to Jimi Hendrix... Um, they didn't have enough film, and they missed one song visually, but they got it on audio. That's Nobody crazy. was thinking of multi-camera shoots and, right. and and all kinds of backup footage and all the stuff we have today. It was all rather seat-of-the-pants kind of stuff, you know? Um, I wanted to mention, um, and then we'll get to Gene and however many people we get before the top of the hour, and we'll do open lines. But I did I hear you right when you say you're a friend of uh, Jim Keltner? I met Jim. I've known Jim Keltner for fifty-two years. I'm a huge fan of his. Well, you know, it, I, it's funny. I talk to him all the time. And by the way, did you ever do the Chip Douglas interview? Oh yeah, I did. Okay, I'm glad we hooked that up. Oh yeah, I did, I, and I, that was also great. But I, 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 I can hook you up with Jim Keltner. He's he, actually. I'm talking to him on Monday. In fact, I told him about the show tonight. I Good. met him as a teenager. He wanted me. He thought I could be a drummer because I kind of was a percussionist. And then I realized I don't. Well, I saw the Mahavishnu Orchestra at the Whiskey Gogo on my 21st birthday in <laughs> Billy Cobham. And I said, Jim. Oh, I love Billy Cobham. I forgot about said, Billy Cobham. I said, if that's where music is going, I can't even get near this thing. I'm going to be an observer. I'm going to write about this stuff. I'm going to be a DJ. I don't care if people tell me I can't write. I have no communication skills. You're never going to make it. But I knew one thing. I wasn't going to be a, a drummer professionally and learn how to read music and be in the very competitive session world. But Jim Keltner is quoted in all my books, uh, just a mentor to me. Oh, yeah. Just a, a, just a marvelous human being. I, I love the Mad Dogs tour, and I, I listened to that. that. I met him on the Mad Dogs tour in 1970. Yeah. I and, think that... Um, that it, it, energy like you'd never... Uh, the, the film kind of catches the energy. That live double album is phenomenal. 
Yeah. All right. Yes, which I listen to all the time, and I, I really love that version of feeling all right. Um, the... Uh, and the only song I really liked from uh, from Gary Lewis and the Playboys is she's that she's just my style. And as I understand it, that was like the first thing Keltner ever did. And I'm like, yeah, Jim Keltner's on. He wasn't on this diamond ring. No, but he's on the only song I love, which is yeah, She's Just ever, My Style. If you ever check out my book, Turn Up the Radio, Rock Pop in Los Angeles, 1956-72, to 72, there's a whole page about Keltner talking about working oh, on, okay. the, on, on, the, on the Gary Luce and the Playboy stuff, but, it's, but he gives a lot of credit to the producer, Snuff Garrett, and of course the piano player and arranger, Leon Russell. Oh, sure. had a lot to do. Oh, sure. With, and, but he really told Jim... You're really going to be a great pop drummer. It was a real confidence booster for Jim. Well, uh, you're always a confidence booster for me. Love having you on the show. Um, and love the being able to fill in some of those blanks in the Rolling Stones histories. And the, the, the new book is called uh, Rolling Stones Icons. And the uh, new album is out, um, which is also interesting at the same time. So thank you, Harvey. I'm, I'd love to have Jim Keltner on. Uh, in the meantime, um, we'll clear the lines and we'll get you ready to get over open lines next on Coast to Coast AM. This is Ian Punnett.